0: Welcome to CompTIA's Shark Bites with Alan Shark, Vice President, Public Sector and Executive Director of CompTIA's Public Technology Institute, where we explore tech leadership in the public sector. Hi everyone, this is Alan Shark and welcome to another episode of Shark Bites where we explore technology leadership in all forms. We begin, uh, uh, let me say this, we continue our journey uh, globally this time Uh, The last episode, we were in Larissa. Greece. Uh, And this time we are speaking with Ruth Buckley uh, in Cork, Ireland. Ruth is one of 12 directors uh, that work for the Cork City Council and is the ICT director there. Uh, I've known Ruth for a number of years because we both uh, attend major cities of Europe events, a great organization similar to PTI, uh, but every year they meet a different European city and it makes life very, very interesting. So Ruth, welcome to the program. Thanks, Alan. So picking up where we left off, uh, and the way I start most podcasts is I always like to see the lens in which people see things. You've been at Cork for a while. We're going to get to that. Uh, first, I should mention, I believe Cork is the second largest uh, city in Ireland. Um, population a little over 300,000. Um, approximately
1: spot on. You've done your homework. Well done, Alan. <laughs> Thanks.
0: <laughs> and uh, how did you get involved? I mean, there are two things here. One, um, you're a woman, and in some cases, that is a rarity. Um, but regardless of that, what got you curious in technology?
1: What, oh, were those I didn't. Beginning,
0: what were those beginning underpinnings? I
1: didn't. My brother was the annoying one with the Spectrum ZX in his bedroom. I really couldn't have given a hoot. Um, and I did. Uh, Ireland is a member of the EU since the 70s. And in the 80s, when I um, was trying to make a decision about careers, I was very focused on jobs, you know, how to get a job. First uh, eldest in my family, six kids. Uh, parents really hardworking, so I had to get a job, and I reckoned if I was going to go to college, computer science was a good bet, and I happened to be quite left brain, which was a help, and I did one of the first bachelors in computer science in University College Cork, Uh, and yeah, it was very pragmatic, very, and it turns out it actually suits me.
0: (laughs) So that worked out for you, but you had no family pressure or anything, it was just laser focused on career. It was, really.
1: Being pragmatic, um, you know, we're just thinking today, I was talking to friends of ours, um, we're all, the one thing we're all trying to make sure is that our children launch, if they actually stand up on their own two feet, and we're all seeing the phenomenon now of where uh, a lot of people, through no fault of their own at times, are stuck at home because they can't buy houses, and that was completely unimaginable in the 80s or 90s when I graduated, you left. Um, as soon as you got you graduated, you typically went abroad or you moved, but you certainly, it was rare to stay at home.
0: Yeah. So uh, earlier, before we uh, started this program, you and I were talking about uh, our passion for public service. Um, was that your first entree into the workforce or did you start in the private sector first?
1: No, like lots of people, I started in Bank of Ireland and financial services were one of the first markets that really utilized tech. Um, if you can think as far back as the original pass machines, you know, it was a really strategic advantage for uh, banks. They were no longer held hostage to strikes. And in Ireland, uh, we had a number of uh, labor disputes, but all those were done away when, when banks uh, started to use this new technology, which was ATMs. And it was a really, really good example of how um, the banks have invested heavily. I believe that some of their core systems still use COBOL or RPG because they're too expensive to replace. And I I do think the banks are exemplars in lots of ways, particularly around security. Um, But I started my career in banks. I did. I learned how to do project management. Um, one of the first uh, American qualification certification PEMP I did that in the late 90s probably one of the most useful qualifications I've ever used in my career Um, and then it was when I got married and my husband and I tried to move um, that there was this new post it was completely new and as a result the unions allowed it to be advertised for the first time publicly or openly and because it was this new post I happened to get it and um Hence, I had to build a department uh, in an IT department in Corp City Council. And it was really interesting because when I started, Alan, only the engineers had PCs. And the poor devil, who was usually a woman who was in, you know, maybe the PA or the secretary who was doing all the typing. And um, if she had anything, it was usually a clapped out piece of crap. Pardon my French. And um I, one of the first things I did is I did a replacement um, a replacement contract whereby old desktops or laptops were placed after every four or five years and not according to your rank. And I actually found that the higher rank you were, the less you used it. And yes. the people who really needed it were the people who were, you know, mm. their their equipment just falling over. So I remember coming into a very strange culture where only engineers 150, one site, and now we have uh, 1,500 staff, I have thirty full time. We have about a uh, thousand devices, and we have fifty locations networked, and we have twenty odd web, sh- web um, websites. Make end end end. So we, we've, I've grown up, um, and it's been a pleasure to be at the helm of a public sector organisation.
0: You know, it's interesting. I trace uh, PTI's history going back to 1971. And I call that the age of dictatorships and tech, um, because Mm. mostly guys, men, were dictating through dictating machines. Um, And at the same time, unlike your example, they would never be caught with a uh, keyboard on their desk. That was looked upon as too administrative, too secretarial. In fact, our organization was founded by a number of organizations, including the National League of Cities and the National Association of Counties, because they, they didn't have a clue. They just knew technology um, could be a game changer. And look where we are today. I think technology with the right leadership has the potential of being a great equalizer among all. So tell me, how long now have you been with the Cork City Council?
1: Oh I, approximately 20 years so I've really my children are grown up. Um, it's a great career because a you get to see immediately what's happening you know you get to roll out public Wi-Fi you get to you know we were the first it was a long time ago now 15 years ago where we rolled out, public access laptops to all the libraries, we've 10 libraries. Um, for the last 20 years, you know, the emergency services are great adopters of early technology. So there's fantastic variety. Um, it can be incredibly frustrating because you're trying to make things stretch, but it really is at the forefront. So whatever it does, however ups and downs and every position has ups and downs, it never is boring. Um, so I think that's, it's, it's kind con- it keeps you in a developmental cycle too, Alan, you have to constantly embrace change, which is a pain, but you do have <laughs> to do it as part of your job.
0: Yeah. But it keeps us awake and it keeps us challenged for sure. I mean, you and I have much in common. I've been with PTI some 19 years, so, um, we've had to reinvent ourselves. And boy, when I look at the issues, how they have changed over the years.
1: And Alan, so- your legacy, you don't get to run away for any mistakes. You live with them. <laughs> <laughs> Which I always think is a great sign of a leader or, or a really, really good legacy. You know, sometimes if you see a huge turnover, somebody's constantly leaping, leaving, you're kind of going, hmm, I wonder. Um, so, look, I always feel that, like that you're around to reap, to harvest what you what you have sown.
0: Yeah. And our sense of history, I think, really helps us. It informs us. I mean, we're not most we're, we're probably not going to repeat the mistakes of the past. Uh, we're probably going to learn from them and grow from them. And and that, to me, is very valuable for the health of an organization.
1: Alan, I never make mistakes. I don't know what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, then we are different. I'm sorry. I'm but,
1: kidding.
0: Uh, <laughs> I know. So I'm, I'm assuming, and you kind of alluded to this, that uh, your organization has evolved over time. You mentioned very quickly that you have a staff of 30. Um, I note that there are 12 directors, you're being one, which tells me you're part of what we call the cabinet. In other words, you are the uh, the the main folks that work underneath the county, I guess, commissioner or the head of. The Our council, chief executive, chief, chief executive. executive. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a very envied position. We have so very many lucky. CIOs in the States who would love to be at the table. Um, they would ha- be happy to be one of 20. <laughs> they, they might be happy to be even the second rung and find themselves the, uh, the office of afterthought, meaning yes. that sometimes decisions are made. And then all of a sudden say, well, you go fix it or you go implement that. Was that always the case in Cork?
1: I was incredibly lucky because from day one, I was a management team um, and I was very lucky because my, there was no predecessor, but the, 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 the deputy manager at the time, um, a very wise man, I think he believed so much in digital transformation. This is 20 years ago that he wanted me a management team. And Alan, I think it's like in the, in the age of digital transformation, and let's face it, we have plenty of evidence. Um, how can you have a management team that's making decisions about resources, about strategic direction, about um, new ways of offering services? How can you, or data, data is the, is the third um asset class now, we all know that, particularly in Europe, um, a lot of European policies is supporting open data. Um, how how can you do that without having that ability or that decision-making at management team? And I know it's, it's uh, unusual. I was reading a report, I think it was by KPMG and Hayes Recruitment. They do a CIO global report and apparently 60% of the CIOs are management team. So that's a good 40% who are not. Um, and I just feel you're missing out. It, it's a bit, you know, uh, data and digital ability is, is as far as I'm concerned, is up there now with money and people. It's, yeah. you know, three key resources. And if you're not having that conversation, being informed at, at a senior level, I think you're missing out.
0: I fully agree and i think we're seeing somewhat of a a turning point here in the states and i think part of that is um, we're coming out of this hopefully post-covid environment and i know that you know you and i met recently in larissa greece with the major cities of europe and it was almost a joke next year we're going to be in greece then it was the next year we're going to be and this is the first time we were together as an organization in in three years um, so how did uh, COVID impact you? I think it brought to the forefront, at least in the States, the absolute importance of technology. I refer to uh, March 2020 as the great pivot, the moment in time where people realized, oh, my goodness, we're going to have to shift the way we do things in ways we're not even prepared for, but we're going to do it. What was the uh, some of the pressures you faced uh, during your lockdowns? Well,
1: we, our culture would be very much um, focused focused on being physically present and I always remember thinking god the way we manage people and the way and I this is in most of the western world it hasn't changed a lot in 50 years and if we know anything that's there's very few things that haven't changed in 50 years 100 years um so I think it really made re- remote working uh, imperative there is no way I could see remote working having been embraced and we didn't embrace it initially we resisted it and um, there's no way it would have happened, I think, without this awful crisis. So it was change, which is pushed through crisis. Now it has been fom- fundamentally um, the transformation, the digital transformation side of it has been very positive because it has people had to change. And um, we had people clamoring at our door to offer to digitize their services, which we did. But people we've been trying to get an audience with for years, all of a sudden were banging on our door. Um, But then the whole area, I suppose, one of the big downsides of it has been the growth in the growth in the threat landscape. Um, And we've seen the last three years, we've seen the cyber threat just exponentially explode um, for all sorts of reasons. But I think the move to digital and online dependence of our economies now on the digital transformation has meant that the cyberspace has become very uh, dense with significant threat actors from the jurisdictional to the individual hobbyist. Um, And how many, I suppose the question I'd ask Alan, how many times do you see uh, cyber criminals in the dock? You
0: don't. You don't. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I remember my parents uh, instilling upon me, you know, the virtues of being good and that crime doesn't pay. And, you know, now wearing a professor's hat, something else I do, I find myself thinking to myself, for some people, crime absolutely pays. And it makes me so angry on so many levels to see how these people are getting away with billions of dollars a year. They say that there could be as many as 4,000 ransomware attacks per day. Um, most of which we don't even hear about. Um, This is a scary thing. So perhaps the obvious uh, answer to a question is what keeps you up at night? What are your biggest worries uh, given your vantage point today?
1: Um, Definitely the cyber threat and turnover of staff, the availability of staff. But I I remember um, where I was when I heard about WannaCry. I was parked on my couch, it was 9 p.m. approximately on a Friday night and this, uh, that's the first I heard about WannaCry, and that had a devastating effect, uh, particularly in the UK, the NHS, not so much here, fortunately, but for a few, you know, a classic example of a cyber attack is you spend the first 24 hours not sure at all what's happening, particularly when it's a completely new one that no the you know, the world has never seen, um, and, and that's really that that's really what i would have spent a lot of time uh trying to mitigate against in the last few years is how do you protect your data we've had two um relatively minor um breaches at our cloud provider level alan um we're a small it department and typically in this is common mm-hmm. most of us are using a large number of cloud providers service providers now um some of them are less secure than others. You do your best when you award the tender, but as you know, security, your cyber stance changes from minute to minute. You, what is secure now is not secure in 10 minutes time, in theory. And we've had uh, two breaches by our, which have occurred. Um, one of them ended up in court, um, one of them ended up in front of the Data Protection Commissioner, um, and of course, all the resulting media attention that you get through all of that. And Morgan's here has to stand up in front of the council and explain what happened, why it happened, how you could do better. That's a constant part of our job now. Um, And it's taking more and more oxygen.
0: Yeah, I mean, all these wonderful plans that uh, many IT leaders have had have kind of been put on hold to devote towards protecting, and people don't always see that. You yeah. know, they see the shiny new technology things like a new app and uh, new ways of doing things, streamline operations, but, you know, just building a better defense is, sometimes could be a hard sell, but it sounds like uh, the leadership team totally gets it and embraces what you're doing.
1: They do, Alan. I'm very lucky. I have a chief executive who's incredibly supportive. And Doherty, um, she's the chief executive of Cork City Council. Very accomplished lady, and she totally gets it. And she was very supportive when I asked her last year to host a cyber um, event, a tabletop exercise for the entire management team. We limped away from that. I had to spend the rest of the afternoon in a darkened room with the curtains pulled because I was so exhausted. (laughs) But it was a brilliant exercise. for the first time, our management team got to role play an actual cyber event. We had a third party company um, experts who we've worked with for a while. They literally rang up and they said, right, you're being attacked. And we had no advance warning. Now we had done a lot of prep for the exercise. We'd made sure that management team had the bones and had the tools, but that one experience I think did more to educate our management team than anything I said.
0: It's amazing. People, uh, you know, think that they have things under control, or they want to believe at the political level, I think people want to believe they have things under control. But um, I find you cannot, with the best plans, unless you practice, like all public safety does, um, you don't really know how prepared you are. We do, as you know, tabletop exercise, we did one in an MCE. And I know you- That was a great one, Alan, it was very good. And you know, we um, did a pilot with one of our better managed cities and they did this to validate what they knew and they were prepared. And obviously the CIO had a good relationship. In this case, it was a city with a city manager and it, the whole executive team was part of this. And they were amazed. There were all these little things that they really were unprepared for. Basic things of alternate communication channels and who speaks for what, who do we tell, who do we report to. And it wasn't the technology piece, it was the governance piece, the policies um, that were kind of out of whack. They were not updated, they did not reflect what needed to be done. So, you know, the word to anyone listening are many ways, never many places you can go. Practice, practice, practice. Don't just say I have a plan on a shelf or in a, a C drive. And that's another problem. We found that some people have their plans on the network drive and guess what happens when you have a ransomware attack? It's locked. You
1: probably can't see this. but Look, this is my, literally my physical folder that I'm holding up there. Um, and we emphasize to people, you need to have a physical folder. Our emergency services, our fire services are excellent. In the same way, I have a colleague and he carries the folder, he's one at home, one in the boot of his car, and one in his office. And that's for, he's in charge of all flooding. And I think it's the exact same with cyber. You need one at home, one in your car, and one in your office. Now, absolutely, we're only learning about this. So lots of people didn't have it, but that one exercise blew people away. And what also blew people away, Alan, and I highly recommend this to um, whoever's listening, if you know a site that has been attacked and has gone through the trauma of a major outage, we were very, very lucky. There's an organization in Scotland and my one of my colleagues went to college with one of their colleagues <laughs> and they were very kind. They had a major cyber attack. Um, they're a well-known public service entity. I won't mention them here, I don't have their permission, but they spoke to our top 100 staff on a cyber Friday afternoon, now you could hear a pin drop. People were gobsmacked. Their incident response manager, a very accomplished man, was brutally honest. He brought them through stage by stage of the attack, how it manifested. But he also let them know how well protected their site was. This wasn't a hickey um, backstreet organisation that was, you know, fly by night. This was a government agency with a lot of knowledge workers, best practice in place, and they were attacked savagely on Christmas Eve, deliberately, Christmas Eve. Then when they regained, uh, when they corralled, say, in Stephen's Day, they were attacked again. They were out for months. Um, They didn't get 20% of their data back. Look, I'm telling you this here secondhand, but that person told a story to my colleagues, and people were blown away. They just... Again, it's far more effective than me standing there telling them this. They needed to hear from somebody who's walked through the pain, somebody they can identify with.
0: That's uh, really riveting. I could even feel it as you mentioned it. And I've interviewed a number of people who have gone through that. And you're right. Um, The criminals are very intelligent. Unfortunately, they do these things on weekends and on holidays when our guard is down. Ruth, you are very fortunate to have... Um, a city that appreciates you. You're in a a fine leadership position. What about all the other cities uh, in Ireland? I mean, there are many, many small jurisdictions. You have a staff. Your Cork has the leadership. What about all these other organizations? We, We see real issues uh, in the States once we get outside of the big cities. Um, Is this similar to- Oh, absolutely. uh, I have have
1: some really talented colleagues who are not on management team who might be reporting into finance, which always for me is a big red flag because it's a very, very traditional way of looking at digital as part of finance you know, that might've been appropriate 30 years ago. I would question, is it appropriate now? Because it's giving a very cost-focused to the decision-making in IT, which is not necessarily appropriate or strategic anymore. Um, Might've been 30 years ago, not now. you know, particularly since, you know, IT is moving from a capital model to an uh, operational model, finance-wise, it's just, look, red flag for me. I have lots of colleagues who are really smart, really talented, who are very frustrated because they're not a management team. Um, they don't have enough resources. They know that they're extremely exposed. I worry and I have resources. Um, you know, they They're it. If the alarm bell sounds on a Friday night or Saturday morning, they might have... Four or five staff. Now, one thing I think you're doing this stage, which I'm very interested in, and I have started my own Irish Isaac here for the Irish local government. We were very fortunate here in Ireland to have a presentation from your multi state Isaac. Yes. Very impressive. And I think it's a great way of mitigating that risk to the smaller ones that are part of the bigger collective. So in Ireland, we're, we've started um, an Irish local government Isaac this, just this year. And we're following a Dutch model of excellence. It's um, it's the, the National Cybersecurity Center of the Netherlands published in twenty twenty a really good model for the developmental of road for ISACs. I think it's called, um, how to develop your Isaac, um, and uh, you know it has three levels. So we're we're trying to tackle that issue where you have small local authorities who are not well resourced. But they have reservoirs of really sensitive data. We do all, like at Cork, we have 11,000 social houses. Every local authority uh, deals with applicants with highly personal, sensitive information. And they hold that. And if that's not properly secured, what's the first thing people are going to go for? Yeah.
0: They go for the lowest hanging fruit, what's vulnerable and what's out there. Let me switch gears, last question. This has been fascinating. If cyber was not your number one concern, what would be on your wish list? Again, putting cyber aside, everything's fine, which it never will be. What are the kind of things you would like to see in terms of digital transformation? In, uh, oh, in
1: um <laughs> I would love to see the opening up of data. I would love to see vast reservoirs of data being published. It is like pulling teeth. I would love to see the realization of IoT, Internet of Things. Um, we saw that in Larissa. There's huge opportunity there to have really good data flows. Very simple things. You know, Cork is a port city. We have a lot of life boys. Um, I'd love to see those enabled with sensors so you could actually never had the problem of somebody who's, god forbid drowning, and there was no life boy because it was missing at mm. the moment we have people circling trying to keep an eye on those i'd love to see the realization of that pet age of mine is wholly onto buckets of data um i think we're still challenged in that even though i think gdpr general data protection regulation from for 2018 has been transformational um i do think this is a worry i have I think we all rushed quite rightly in the last two years to digitise. We didn't really look at the business processes, so everything looks great from the front. Not so sure the back end is anything to write home about, you know. So I think the rush transformation has been great but I do think there's a lot of due process has to be followed up in the background. I could go on, but as you can get, <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot there. But I suppose one thing I would like as well is I worry about my staff. I have brilliant staff. They could get earned twice as much money in the morning. Um, I'd like to be able to do more for them because they're
0: really the secret of any success how do you keep them this now i said this will be the last question because we're facing this problem here you know ireland had some real economic issues many many years ago and uh, the wisdom of, the, of 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 many said we're going to be a tech capital and ireland really did an amazing job and you've had a few waves with tech there's ups and downs but essentially you are a tech economy these we days we're yeah we have and
1: headquarters european headquarters for facebook twitter uh, stripe we just have loads and loads of household names and very familiar We've intel and kildare we're very lucky and we've built up our economy based on the fact that we're small not beautiful but we're we have knowledge workers we're really good um i'm kidding of course and we have knowledge workers we have a lot of highly skilled smart mobile people but we need to attract as well um how do we keep our staff i think the public sector offers something called quality of life Mm -hmm. um they're not, you know, a lot of people I have, Um, they're really, really good. They could make, earn twice as much money, but they also know that we're very humane. The public sector is very humane. Um, If somebody has is going through a tough time, you know, we will bend backwards for them. We will facilitate them. A colleague of mine has just come back from a close family bereavement. And I met him this morning. And he said, I really appreciated all the people that trekked down um, to the ceremonies um." for my family and I like to think that's part of our ethos and our culture in the public sector we're humane we're in the business of quality of life and that's for our own staff um, a lot of people will say to you quality of life it's really important that they know they're not going to get an email in the morning to say look you're, you've are you been let go Um, there's also something that we do which is very tough as a manager I reckon if you can manage in the public sector you can manage anywhere Alan because we have to deal with incentives that uh, that uh, such as, you know, part-time working, um, term time, you know, uh, parental leave, they're all models in the public sector. And that's really hard for a manager to manage a team like that. In the private sector, this wouldn't facilitate that. You know, yeah. I, I know a multinational literally down the road here, um, household name, you'd know them off the top of your head. And they have 3,000 people working for them and they have two on part-time. We yeah. maybe 150 out of 1500 so you know a very different and a lot of those ironically during the last recession in 2008 2018 in ireland a lot of my it's typically women but you know fortunately that's no longer the case a lot of women were working part-time and they were literally keeping the bread on the table and the lights on because the husbands or partners were small-time builders small-time farmers. And it was a lot of those women kept and they were part time because they couldn't afford childcare, but they were literally keeping the whole show on the road. And a lot of them were working here in the public sector.
0: I'm going to let that be the final word. Ruth, it's been wonderful talking to you. I look forward to visiting you in person in Cork, Anytime, Ireland. Anytime, an Open invitation. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's, it's truly been a pleasure. And for those listening, I think they realize immediately, not only your passion, but the similar, similarity of issues between Absolutely. what we're facing. And I'm sure this is global. All societies face this and uh, tech is so important. We've got to protect those records and we've got to keep the right people. Thank you so much, Alan. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you. That conversation could have gone on for another hour. Ruth is truly remarkable uh, and an inspiration for all of us throughout the globe. This is Alan Shark. You've been listening to Shark Bites. And as I always say, um, be safe personally, be safe digitally. Until next time. This has been a production of the Comtia Public Technology Institute. To learn more, visit connect.comtia.org and search Public Sector.